and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode. We're nearing the end of season seven. We I think are. we've got another three to go with this it's one. It's crazy, isn't it? It's come around so fast. And then it's our four year anniversary slash podcast birthday, which is exciting. And season eight starts. And we are also gearing up for our 200th episode in about two, three months, I think. Are we? That's really exciting. I think this is episode 188. So, wow. Uh, so yeah, we're, uh, we'll be there very soon. Thank you very, very much to our, all of our Patreon supporters, but most especially the recent ones. So we have Sunny, Liz Jones, Aidan Prince, Anna, Laura Murray, Meg Egner. I said that wrong. Ebner. Sorry, Meg. Sam Taylor, Laura Crawley, Lynn Roberts and Paula B. It wouldn't be a Patreon thank you without me stumbling over someone's name, would it? Exactly, yeah. Thank you to um, to all of you. If you are listening to this and you would like to support us and support the show, ensuring we're around for a good time, not just a long time. No, a long time, not <laughs> just a good time. Uh, then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up and we've got loads of benefits for you so you can really get your fill of seeing red. And honestly, the support we get from each and every single Patreon supporter, it just means that we can carry on with the show and continue to hopefully make it bigger and better um, with every new season that we come back with. This week we are going to be discussing a case that has been talked about on our social media a lot and I'm sure I've probably mentioned it a few times on the main show as well. So we will be talking about the events of the 14th of June 2017 when a fire ravaged through Grenfell Tower in North Kensington, West London in England. I have been wondering about when to cover this tragedy so I wanted to wait until we had the full story and all the answers but the inquiry is still ongoing over five years later and to be honest I do wonder whether we're going to get any justice anyway once the inquiry is complete so I thought you know what let's just let's just go for it. Yeah it's so sad because we when we went to CrimeCon a few weeks ago we drove past Grenfell and it's still encased in all of that I don't know what it like is. Plastic like plastic sheeting and scaffolding, Yeah, all the plastic it? sheeting. Yeah. It's got the big green heart on there that so many of us in this country will be familiar with um, from when we've seen it on the news. So, yeah, when we drove past it, it was just so... It's like, it's just one of those sites, isn't it, that so much devastation, you can almost feel that when you're in the vicinity. It's like being at the World Trade Centre, for example. It's a really similar feeling. Yeah, it's it's mad because... It's such a huge imp- imposing sort of bit of the skyline anyway, but then to know a bit about what happened, just it just hits you, doesn't it? It just made both of us kind of stop and kind of took our breath away, didn't it, to think about, so... It really did, yeah. And I do think that majority of our UK listeners will probably know about the Grenfell Fire, but for anyone who hasn't heard of this, basically the Grenfell Fire is the most devastating residential fire in Britain since World War II. On the 14th of June 2017, the nation woke up to images and videos all over social media and news outlets of the devastation. And I really remember this so clearly. I remember waking up and going onto Facebook, and I don't know if you're the same as me, Mark, but I kind of scroll Facebook when I first woken up. And I just saw the images kind of just all over Facebook of this smouldering tower building. And I just felt this sense of dread in the pit of my stomach reading about what happened to those poor people. And I was there just sleeping absolutely soundly. Weirdly, I just can't 
I can't, unlike a lot of other tragedies, I really remember where I was at the time and, and how I found out about it. With this, I, I don't know why. I just can't really remember where I was or when. So in, in my head, it was the evening that I saw it on the news or something. So I, I just can't remember. It's so strange because I remember getting into work and we were all discussing it. Nobody kind of knew quite what to think sort of like how had it happened we were all talking about how did something go so badly wrong how many people died how many people got out so perhaps your memories then kind of kick in from when you got home and you properly researched things rather than just conversationally talking about something or maybe you've kind of blocked out that initial yeah I just I just it's weird I remember it was I knew it was in the summer so June the 14th obviously as you've said and I remember it being light later at night and I remember seeing the pictures on the news and it, I think it was a blue sky. So I remember bits of it. I just, yeah, I just don't remember much. I don't remember a lot of it, weirdly. In the weeks afterwards, we learned that 72 people had died in the 24-storey tower block following a fire which was the result of a faulty appliance. And an inquiry into the many failings that led to the disaster was set up after the fire, amidst growing anger and frustration from the British public. The first phase of the inquiry looked at the witness reports of what had happened, revealed how the fire began, spread and became a disaster, and catalogued a series of mistakes made by the London Fire Brigade when they were dealing with this. And it also um, had lots of witness reports as well that began to feed into the second phase of the inquiry where people would talk about the aftermath and how they were treated. And then the second phase, which was which is due to look at the refurbishment and the cladding used on Grenfell, with a focus on how this went so wrong so fast, has been postponed. And we're still waiting for the outcome of this section. Has that been postponed because of COVID and yeah, all the delays? exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so you can look on the website and see kind of where they're up to and you can read through things. Um, and so it's still kind of like the the information is still being digested and looked at, but it's been postponed, yeah, because of lockdowns and that side of things. Grenfell Tower was part of the Lancaster West Estate, a housing complex in North Kensington. A 24-storey tower block was designed in 1967 and consists of 24 storeys. So the first floor is the ground floor. So where you walk in, there's a ground floor. There is underneath a basement. Then the next... So on that ground floor, there's a lobby, an office area, a nursery, and also the lifts, the bin, the electrical rooms, kind of the stuff you'd expect when you first walk in. Next floor up is a mezzanine floor, the next floor up is a walkway level, the next floor up is an office floor, and then that's when the housing begins after this, which is called first floor, up to the 20th floor. That's interesting, because I, I never knew that, I just presumed, I, I never thought they would have flats on, on the ground floor, but I thought from the first floor upwards they would, so that's interesting to know that really, it's pretty much like the fourth floor before you begin with people's homes. Exactly correct, yeah. So there's 24 storeys, but only 20, 20 floors have flats on them. And then in the residential section, there are 120 one-bedroom and two-bedroom flats. And I've put a little picture in Mark to try and explain to you, um, sort of so you can kind of picture it in your mind when we're talking. But basically, the standard layout of those floors was that there's a lobby in the middle where you come out of either the staircase or your lifts. And then around you then, because you're in the centre of the building, around you, there are two one-bedroom apartments and four two-bedroom apartments. So the 
the picture kind of shows you where they are so you can see really there's there's kind of every floor will be exactly the same yeah and just just for the benefit of our listeners so the two bedroom apartments take up a corner of this building because the building is square so they're a, a corner each and then the two one bed apartments are kind of sat in the middle of one side opposite each other and then yeah, yeah that square and in the middle the square which in is the middle is the 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 stairs and the lifts yeah yeah we'll put some pictures on social media as well just or you can google them and find them i was quite shocked by just how many residences there are in such a small space i don't know it's one of those i i I just wouldn't have known how many flats were on each floor i wouldn't have been able to guess that i could have easily said 12 or something like that so for me i'm surprised that there's not more than 120 flats across those 20 floors. But I suppose the actual sort of square footage that the tower block takes up in terms of on the ground, it's not actually that big. It's just the fact that it's tall. That's such a good point, yeah. Grenfell Tower was managed by Kensington Chelsea London Borough Council, so KCLBC, until 1996. In 1996, the council created Kensington and Chelsea TMO, so KCTMO, which was a tenant management organisation which would manage its council housing stock. So KCTMO had a board comprising eight residents, and they could be tenants or leaseholders, four council-appointed members, and three independent members. This tower was built for council housing, but 14 of the flats had been bought under the right-to-buy policy, so these were occupied either by the leaseholders or were privately rented out by them on the open market. And the building features an in-situ concrete core, concrete escape stair and lifts in the centre, as we were kind of explaining, and the floors are in-situ concrete. So the flats are arranged around the core, and this is a really straightforward standard form of construction. It's what you'll find in the majority of buildings, especially in the UK. I think I think if you gave a six-year-old child a, a task of designing a, a tower block to house 120 flats, they would kind of come up with this plan because it, it just really makes common common sense, doesn't it? It makes it sense to have designed it this way. Space, yeah, although I imagine a six-year-old would probably put like a helter-skelter around the outside or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and a sweet shop on the ground floor. Definitely. I'd have a sweet shop on the ground floor too, and I'm not even six. Grenfell Tower then underwent a major renovation which was announced in 2012 and conducted over 2015 to 2016 and in this the tower received new windows, a water-based heating system for individual flats and new aluminium composite rain screen cladding. According to the application the purpose of the cladding was to improve heating and energy efficiency and to also improve the external appearance. Two types of cladding were used so there was Arconics Renobold PE which consists of two coil-coated aluminium sheets that are fusion-bonded to both sides of a polythene core, and then also Raynolux aluminium sheets. And beneath these and fixed to the outside of the walls of the flats was Celotex RS5000 PIR thermal insulation. Now, an alternative cladding with better fire resistance was actually refused due to cost, And the cladding features panels at windowsill height with alternating windows, panel, window panel, if that makes sense. So um, the cladding kind of goes in between the windows and then it sort of alternates as you're looking down the row. And then the windows are made of a polyester powder coated aluminium. The panels are a rain screen cassette system, which is fixed to the building. So 
If you look at drawings, they kind of show the cassettes feature a timber-coloured backing board with the insulation, so possibly like a foamy type of material, which is fixed to the panel. There's then a ventilated cavity in front of the insulation, which the drawings suggest is 50 millimetres deep or so. And then the cavity features horizontal cavity barriers, which are designed to prevent the spread of fire. But basically, the cladding is a lot of different versions of polyethylene and thermal insulation but they are also designed to repel the rain so that the rain can't get in and, and make it go mouldy so when it rains on the outside of the building it's not going to go in it's going to repel that does that make any sort of sense at all well no uh i'm i mean yes it does and there's a lot of there's a lot of tower blocks that still have cladding on so we're probably all familiar with it or what it looked like but i'm just trying to find a picture of grenfell tower before uh, the fire and it's really hard to find any pictures um maybe if i type in before fire i can see now actually yeah um it it's sort of uh, yeah i can see it now actually and it does look quite smart to be fair um obviously we'll go on to hear that this cladding was so the wrong decision but i can i can understand the need to have something to um stop water damage that kind of thing because this is such an exposed building and it's so tall and it is exposed to the elements and you would probably get potentially a lot of problems from weather that you wouldn't necessarily get on a house or a smaller block of flat so i can understand that there was a need for something but yeah they chose the wrong material didn't they and there's been a lot of talk about um going forward after this fire about getting rid of the same types of cladding and not using it again and i haven't gone into that in this episode because um, oh my gosh, there's so much with this whole case. Um, but it's very, very interesting to see, um, wow, really how slowly a lot of those changes have been brought in, which is quite yeah. terrifying. Well, I, um, I know where I live in Bristol, there's, um, there's a, a tower block of flats in the city centre and that's all cladding and that's had scaffolding around it for years. And I think the residents in that, because it's a private block, the residents are having to pay, I can't remember the exact amount, it's something like 10 or 20 grand each towards the cost of removing the cladding. And it's been ongoing for years. So, you know, they look out their window from inside their flat and they just see scaffolding and sheeting um, over that scaffolding. And it's been oh, that way for years. That's awful. So the original contractor, Leadbitter, had been dropped by KCTMO because their price of £11.278 million was £1.6 million higher than the proposed budget and the contract was put out to competitive tender and won by Ryden, whose bid was £2.5 million less than Leadbetter's. Ryden carried out the refurbishment for £8.7 million with Artelia on contract administration and Max Fordham as a specialist mechanical and electrical consultant. The cladding was fitted by Harley Facades of Crowborough, East Sussex at a cost of £2.6 million. Residents had expressed significant safety concerns before the fire. One of the criticisms of improvements to the tower block was to have just one staircase for all the floors. So unlike in many other countries, UK regulations do not require a second staircase. And this is reasonably standard in similar buildings as they're designed to never require a full evacuation due to the stay put policy, which I'm going to go into detail about more shortly. Residents had also criticised the tower's emergency lighting. So as with the majority of tower blocks in the UK, Grenfell Tower did not have fire sprinklers and there was no centrally activated fire alarm. Already I'm, I'm mad as hell because I just think, how was all of this 
able to continue to not have sprinklers to not have a central fire alarm and this stay put policy just frightens the life out of people and to kind of say that if there is a fire in this tower block you just kind of shut all your doors and windows and wait that goes against everybody's instincts it really does um they it makes sense from a science point of view which we will go into but from yeah from a human nature point of view it completely goes against what you what you want to do doesn't it yeah and i lived in a block of flats it was a like they were brand new moved in and i remember they said in the event of a fire you just shut all the doors and windows and wait and you've got an hour um and we will you know the fire brigade would be able to kind of rescue you within that time so so i remember living somewhere where it was the same advice but you it does it just you sort of think is that right is that definitely right and i think you're just naturally going to want to get out the Grenfell Action Group, so GAG, ran a blog in which it highlighted major safety problems, criticising the council and KCTMO for neglecting fire safety and building maintenance. Because of the seriousness of this case, I am not going to make a joke about the anacronym of the Grenfell Action Group, which in brackets you've put. Well, I'm glad you're not going to make a joke about it, but I did, as I was writing, thought Bet Mark has a little snigger at the fact that it just says gag. In 2013, the group published a 2012 fire risk assessment by a KCTMO health and safety officer which recorded safety concerns. And in this, they highlighted that firefighting equipment at the tower had not been checked for up to four years, on-site fire extinguishers had expired, and some had the word condemned written on them because they were so old. But they were still there. And GAG documented its attempts to contact KCTMO management. They also alerted the council's cabinet member for housing and property, but said that they never received a reply. GAG warned that people might be trapped in a building if a fire broke out, pointing out that the building only had one entrance and exit, and that corridors had been allowed to fill with rubbish, such as old mattresses. GAG frequently cited other fires in tower blocks when it warned of the hazards of Grenfell. GAG characterised KCTMO as an evil, unprincipled mini-mafia and accused the council of ignoring health and safety laws and suggested that only a catastrophic event would expose the ineptitude and incompetence of KCTMO and even wrote, we predict that it won't be long before the words of this blog come back to haunt the KCTMO management and we will do everything in our power to ensure that those in authority know how long and how appallingly our landlord has ignored their responsibility to ensure the health and safety of their tenants and their leaseholders. They can't say that they haven't been warned. I mean, what an awful thing to kind of read or to hear now, knowing what happened. That's haunting, isn't it? It's so prophetic for several years prior to this happening and, and not really that many years before, you know, it, it was only a couple of years later and and what they predicted came true. That's just terrible. Two of the women who lived in Grenfell Tower called Mariam and Nadia, they were actually threatened with legal action by KCTMO after campaigning for improved fire safety. But these two women both later died in the fire. In 2016, an independent assessor had highlighted 40 serious issues with fire safety at Grenfell Tower and recommended action to be taken within weeks. In October, the assessor asked KCTMO why there had been no action taken for more than 20 issues in the June report. And in November 2016, the London Fire and Emergency Planning Authority served a fire deficiency notice listing many fire safety issues at Grenfell Tower that required action from KCTMO by May 2017. Areas of concern identified included fire doors, the smoke venting system and the firefighters lift controls. Clearly, this is 
something that needs addressing in the inquiry because who was in charge of making these changes or addressing the actions that needed to be taken why the hell was this not done yeah so this is in this is in 2016 isn't it so that's mm-hmm. a year before. It just seems like all, all these warning signs beforehand and and nothing happening. This really was, I know it's such a cliche, but this was an accident waiting to happen, wasn't it? Yeah. So as we kind of touched on before, like many other tower blocks in the UK, Grenfell Tower was designed to be operated under a stay-put policy in the event of a fire. So the idea of this is that if a fire breaks out in one flat, the thick walls and fire doors contain the fire long enough for the fire brigade to bring that fire under control. Only those in the affected dwelling would be expected to evacuate, potentially the people on the same floor, but even then that's not expected. And so this building was designed under the assumption that a full evacuation would never be necessary. It's exactly like you said, you just sit and wait and we will bring the fire under control and then you'll be able to come out. But I wonder how many of the residents were aware of that. Um, quite from what I've read with the witness statements, um, a lot of them, it was there was there was very little in the way of fire safety in this building and some of the surrounding buildings and you know, the signs up and there was never fire drills and things like that I'm not really sure how you would do something like that when it's a residency but there was no no sort of thing like that however even if people weren't aware of it at the time as soon as they called 999 that was the advice given to them by the emergency services call handlers as well so whether they were aware of it prior or not that was what they were told on the night of the fire Grenfell Tower for some people was like many other local communities where people share their lives, often getting to know their neighbours or at least knowing them enough to nod in passing. And some people have described this as a vertical street, 129 flats rented or owned by a community of family, friends and neighbours. The residents had often lived there for years and got to know each other over the decades as they waited for the lifts before work or kept a watch fly over the other people's children. I, I love that description of it as a vertical street. I've never thought of that before, but that's so true, isn't it? I really liked it when I saw that and I had to use it word for word. Yeah. I can't, I think it was a BBC article I read where they said that, but I'm not sure if it's attributed to a resident who said it or if it was the journalist who said it themselves, but I loved it as well. This doesn't mean that everyone properly knew their neighbours or the residents who lived nearby. And in fact, Behelu Kibedi, who we're going to hear from first, was an Uber driver who talked of how he had two women living at his flat. So he'd let them have the two bedrooms and he slept in the lounge and he'd done this to help them out. But he actually didn't know their full names. He only knew their first names. And one of the women he'd known for years. Often this would come up. People knew others to see or say hi to, but they didn't know them properly or fully. And to be honest, I know my neighbours by name. We speak often. We've lived side by side for over 13 years, but I don't know their surnames. They're not living in my bedroom, but I can kind of see it, how it might happen. And I did find that weird that he only knew their first names. That really surprised me because they're renting rooms from him. But actually, if it's not anything official and you don't need a contract signed and you're just letting them kip in the bedroom... Maybe you wouldn't. And he's probably working 80 hours a week as an Uber driver, so he's probably rarely yeah. sees them, you know? He just Exactly. He kind of said he'd just be a passing ship sort of thing. Yeah. The reason I mention this is because it made it really hard for the emergency services to know who to look for, and it meant people had to appeal for information about their loved ones with missing posters and photos of them, trying to hope for some sort of answers. So the first 999 call came from the resident in whose flat the fire began. Behelu Kebedi, and he lived in flat 16 on the fourth floor. 
He had a smoke alarm in his apartment which woke him and he saw what he believed to be an electrical fire at the back of his fridge. He shouted to wake the women who were renting the bedrooms of his flat. He rang the emergency services and this was at 0054, so 5 to 1 in the morning. He alerted all his neighbours and he waited for the fire brigade who arrived on scene just six minutes later and began to put on their apparatus. But Haylou did everything right. So he turned off his electricity while he waited. He shut all his doors. He did all he could to attempt to keep others safe. This should have meant that the fire was entirely contained within just his flat. But the fire had already spread from the kitchen to the outside of the tower block when firefighters entered at 1.14. The firefighters blasted the kitchen fire with hoses of water, but this just wasn't enough. The heat from the flames had melted the UPVC window frame and this had created a cavity in which the gases escaped and the flames were quickly able to spread. They blasted water at the cladding, but to no avail. The waterproof materials were repelling the hoses that they used in attempts to put out the fire and the polyethylene material inside the cladding was melting and burning. The fire was an intense ball of flame and it was spreading fast. One of the initial firefighters on scene said, It became clear the fire was going up the building. I remember the intensity of the flame, what I can only describe as huge balls of flame falling down along with debris. It just didn't stop. We kept hitting it, but it was having no bearing on the fire. This is just a nightmare scenario because I hadn't thought of that, but the cladding is designed to repel the rainwater. And Mm -hmm. obviously when they're spraying their hoses at the cladding to try and put the fire out, yeah, of course, it's just not going to work because it's going to repel it. Such an awful realisation, isn't it? Once the fire had made its way out of flat 16 on the fourth floor, it just took half an hour before it hit the top storey. The fire had also travelled on the cladding around the sides of the building. At 0127, the fire hit the top of the building, and at this point the flames spread horizontally and then back down the building. A 999 call at half past one was from a resident on the 22nd floor and her flat was on fire. The compartmentation had failed and the stay-put policy was just totally the wrong one by this point. The later inquiry made the judgment that the stay-put policy should have been abandoned a lot sooner than it was. London Fire Brigade were not equipped, prepared or even able to comprehend a full evacuation of such a large building. The idea of trying to get everyone out so so quickly was just absolutely unthinkable. But actually, the order for residents to stay in their homes meant so many people died in their flats or tried to make their escapes far too late. And by the time they were leaving, the stairs were dangerously filled with toxic smoke. So residents were actually not told to evacuate the building until 2.47am, so two hours after the initial 999 call. I also think a lot of people will will naturally just do as they're told by the authorities. So if the authorities are saying, don't evacuate your flat, you need to keep all the windows and doors shut, even though you perhaps know that you're in mortal danger and you do need to get out, you're going to be thinking, well, they're the experts and they've told me to stay put, so they must know what they're on about. I can't remember which um, politician it was, but some politician came under huge scrutiny for the fact that he kind of made an offhand comment like, well, surely common sense dictates you don't listen to them if they tell you to stay put and it's clearly a fire. And people went absolutely fucking mental at him and with good reason, because actually, no, you're right. These people in authority positions have told you what to do. You're putting your trust in them. The same as those firefighters who then come in and say to you, right now we're leaving, you follow me, we go down the stairs, blah, blah, blah. And you're trusting them to then lead you through the thick smoke. So you're putting your life in their hands. Of course you're going to follow the instructions. But you're not going to want to evacuate. If you've been told to stay put to prevent the fire from spreading further, 
and told that you're safe, you, you're going to be sort of thinking, well, if I, if I am, if I do try and leave now and I open my door to get out, then I could potentially cause the fire to spread further and be responsible for people's lives. So, so you've also got that. Um, eating away yeah. at you that you're just going to do as you're told because you don't want to make the situation any worse and put anyone else in danger. By 2.20am, so 27 minutes before the stay put advice was actually officially abandoned, the amount of thick black smoke present in the stairwell, so the only means of escape, was so much that it itself posed a significant risk to life. And this smoke was not just smoke, although I say that with inverted commas because we know smoke inhalation is deadly, but this was also toxic smoke filled with chemicals due to the burning cladding. And actually people were being told when they were calling 999 to put damp towels around the door frames which I think a lot of us would know as as reasonably good advice. It can help to stop the smoke coming through. But actually, that doesn't stop the chemicals coming through in the air. So people were still breathing in the toxic chemicals. So there's nothing you can do. You can do all of that. You can try and seal your flat and you might be able to prevent the fire from coming in in an ordinary building, but the chemicals are still going to get in and that can obviously cause significant damage, yeah. If the, if it's a chemical fire as well, which is what this this was. As more and more firefighters and units were deployed to the tower block, they arrived and were faced with such a horrific scene unfolding. One of the firefighters said in their statement, no matter how much training you have, you know that kind of fire is not going to end well. And she said she was actually the most scared at that point when she saw the burning building. This firefighter could just see how many people were working hard to do their jobs, but it was chaotic. Emergency services personnel were rushing around, paramedics waiting outside to treat any casualties, because obviously the paramedics couldn't go in, and she and her team made their way up to the first floor to begin evacuation. When they made their way up there, they came across a casualty on the stairs blocking the stairway, the only staircase, and this kind of came up time and time again. People accidentally creating problems by either waiting or being left or falling down on this one solo staircase through the entire building. Which is probably pretty narrow as well. Well, not like ultra narrow, but it's just going to be a pretty normal staircase that you'd encounter in any sort of building like or an office block. So... Yeah, it would only take one person to fall over or collapse. And with all the thick black smoke, you're not going to see stuff. So people are tripping over. It's just chaos. Yeah. And I know we spoke about um, staying put if you're told you should. And there were a few residents who I read their stories where they had mobility issues. And actually, they wouldn't have been able to go down the stairs by themselves. They would always use the lifts. I mean, one woman had tried to get the council to put her somewhere on a ground floor. She just couldn't, she didn't have the ability to go up and down and they refused. And that's why she was living um, reasonably high up in Grenfell. And she died in her flat because there was no other way for her to get out. So even, I guess, I didn't really think about it, but even you're not necessarily just being told don't move, don't go. It's also, well, I can't unless someone comes to my flat to take me. I can't. So that's another level, isn't it? Yeah, that must have been terrifying for those individuals because you've got no control over the situation or the only option is to just wait and be rescued. And it must have have slowly dawned on them that that was looking less and less likely and that they were potentially, you know, facing the end of their life in, in their flat. The main control room was on the phone to numerous residents who'd called 999 for assistance. And of course, the advice was to stay put and await rescue, but often they would stay on the phone with people. So some people called and spoke to 999 call handlers for a short time and the messages were then relayed to the ground teams. But others stayed on the line for a really long time. And heartbreakingly, a number of people stayed on the line with the call handlers 
recalling them kind of just going quiet and realising that those people had died whilst waiting to be rescued. In the chaos, a number of facts were taken down wrong. So, for example, someone saying they're on floor 14, but the call handler incorrectly reporting that they were in flat 14. Lots of miscommunication. One witness explained to the inquiry how he and his family made their escape, saying, when we got onto the landing, my daughter started walking to the lift and pressed the button to call the lift, and I remember pulling her back and telling her, we need to take the stairs. We ran down the stairs and out of the tower. It only took us a few minutes to exit the tower. I was in shock, and all I could think about was getting out of the flat. I didn't realise until we were outside the tower that my daughter had come out without her shoes. My memory about exiting the tower stairwell has almost completely gone. I only remember what happened when we got to the ground floor. We tried to exit the tower by the fire exit at the bottom of the stairs and she was just about to walk out of the fire exit when I saw fire and debris falling outside the tower. I pulled her back and I told her we need to go out of the main entrance. Yeah, because that's the other thing. You you make your escape, you get out the block of flats, but like you said, there's debris falling from the side of the building from this cladding. So you've got these sort of fireballs just fall into the ground, yeah? Another witness who made it out of the tower fire said, The smoke alarm which was on the ceiling of the kitchen had not gone off, despite the kitchen being full of smoke. There was also a smoke alarm in the hallway, and this did not go off either. The firefighter I mentioned earlier was tasked with getting up to the 21st floor. She described in her statement how she and her partner were making their way up the stairs, which were covered in debris, checking any bundle of anything that they came across in case it was a person, in thick black smoke which made it almost impossible to see. There were no numbers signalling the floors that they were on, so they just kept climbing and climbing, usually on their hands and knees, reaching out and checking their surroundings and feeling for potential casualties around them. And I just can't even begin to imagine how that must have been. Full gear, heavy, the oppressive heat, the claustrophobic feeling of just all of it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because if you were climbing 21 floors um going via the stairs then that alone is knackering but to be doing it with all of the equipment and the the sort of fire suit and in all that heat and the smoke and the awful worry of what's going to greet you when you get to the top i i just you know we we talk a lot about nhs workers being heroes but you rarely hear this about the fire brigade and i know that there's some mistakes like there always is in, in these scenarios, but people generally do what was right at the time. And it's easy to sit in an office afterwards and pick it all apart. And I, there, I'm sure there's some genuine mistakes, but I just think the job they do, putting their lives at risk, it's just insane. It really is. Finally, this pair found a number on a front door and they shone a torch and it was flat 164. So they knew they still had a long way to go to get up to the 21st floor. They continued on, but at around the 18th floor, they discovered some casualties. Um, they rescued the child, who was by this point described as a ragdoll, limp and floppy in the firefighter's arms. So the pair headed down. They got outside, having explained they hadn't managed to successfully rescue the people on floor 21. And she actually said, frankly, even if we had made it to the 21st floor, I don't know how we would have made it out to safer with the occupants of two flats, as we had no way of giving them clean air. And she said she later checked the lists of the dead and she couldn't see this little girl noted. So she believed that she'd managed to save her. And I guess you'd kind of cling to that, that the hope that you had. And and we could have lost two firefighters there if they had carried on and made it to the 21st floor and tried to evacuate all of the residents on that floor. It's just, it it was, yeah, it was never going to work, was it? 
I think it was this firefighter who was describing in her witness statement that as they were trying to go into somewhere, they were about to do something, they heard on the radios, has anyone seen firefighter and then the name, I can't remember the name, and people were, other firefighters, and we've lost this firefighter, like, where is, so they're going in thinking potentially one of their brothers has died in this fire already, or potentially something bad's happened, but she was like, you don't, you just put that out of your mind, she said actually they then realised, they later found out that this firefighter was okay, and that was great, but at the time it was very much like, that's being dealt with, we carry on with our job. But it, it must still play on your mind of how dangerous this is that, yeah, we've we've potentially lost a colleague tonight who's gone into this building and I'm now having to go in and get to the top and, and get a whole floor evacuated. So this pair had a brief rest because they were exhausted and they had some water and then it was back into the burning building. To get to where they had to go to get in, they were actually protected from falling debris by the police holding riot shields up. So they were making like a bridge to cover so the firefighters could get back in and so people could get out and by the time they went in for their second round the building was glowing the fire was inside not just on the outside and the lobby was flooded it was ankle deep in water water was pouring through the ceilings and this time the firefighter was given the task within a team of four so this team of four headed up the stairs again As they ascended, they realised someone had begun writing the floor numbers on the walls, which was a massive help. And they checked a number of flats on the ninth floor, which were by now on fire, but they found no one who needed to be rescued. So they eventually made their way out, absolutely exhausted. And this firefighter spoke of the mental trauma of finding a casualty on the stairs who was impossible to move. So they actually had to leave her and how difficult it was to battle a fire in a building of this size. And to know that if you're leaving that person, they're they're going to die. There's no two ways yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, I think that this person's leg had got caught in the, bar- in the banisters or something like that. And she kind of said later they would have had to have done a lot to try and get her out. Whereas they had this small child that they could just pick up and move. And it was a case of we move this child and we may save her life. And I think it's really important to remember, like you just said, that the firefighters in charge, those in command positions inside and outside the tower, were motivated solely to make decisions that would, in their honestly held view, facilitate the rescue of people trapped in the tower. The events of that night were unprecedented in both scale and complexity and the enormous challenges posed. A multi-storey external fire and a multi-storey internal fire is already a big enough job, but On the night of the fire, none of the firefighters, including the people in command positions, had any knowledge that Grenfell Tower was clad in such highly combustible but rainproof cladding. So I think, as you said, actually, whether there were mistakes made on the night by the firefighters, they were doing the best job that they possibly could at that point in time. Yeah, no one's gone in there with a malicious motive of not wanting to save as many people as possible. And I think, yeah, like lessons can always be learned and my God, there's there's a lot of lessons to learn. But I think those on the ground and in control rooms at the time did what they'd been trained to do. And yeah, I just think it's easy to go into an office two years later and pick it apart because you could do that to anything. Any decision we've made, anything we've ever done, it would have been right at the time, but you could pick it apart and with the benefit of hindsight, challenge why that decision was made. But it was right at the time. The bravery of those firefighters on the ground who risked their own lives and health for the rest of the Grenfell is something we can never forget. 
The majority of them worked over their normal shifts, continued to try and help with the search and rescue efforts well after they were expected to. But they were fighting a losing battle. There were communication issues between the 999 call handlers and the teams, communication issues between firefighters, radios didn't work, so some have said potentially this was due to the concrete thick building, potentially it was due to the sheer volume of traffic on the radios. At one point, the firefighters were using their own mobile phones to relay relay information. There was an issue with the water pressure, although, to be honest, many of the firefighters have said, even with full pressure it was an impossible fire to put out. The 999 call handlers that night received over 300 calls and the sheer volume of calls and information just overloaded the system. The story of floor 14 and the night of Grenfell Fire is one that highlights many of the ways that things went wrong. So when Zainab rang 999 from her flat in 115, where she lived with her two-year-old son, Jeremiah, the call handler misheard her, saying she was on floor 14 and thought she was in flat 14. And then when firefighters reached floor 14, they were met with three occupied flats. There were residents who had suffered varying degrees of smoke inhalation. So there was Zainab and Jeremiah, Omar and Mohammed, they were brothers from another flat. There was Oluwasen and his wife Rosemary and their four-year-old daughter who lived in flat 113 and a man called Dennis in 111. So the firefighters ended up choosing to gather the six adults and two children together in flat 113, which was the opposite side of the building to the fire and seemed to have the cleanest air. They didn't think at this point they could safely evacuate the residents and at this point they were continuing to follow the compartmentation rules. They attempted to radio down for a team to come and help them get the residents and to bring more rescue equipment, but the radios didn't work. So they had to go back down and they told the control officers who were running the operation who and what they had left up on floor 14. The pair of firefighters who were sent up to flat 113 were then told they were rescuing a family. They later said they wanted to work quickly and get people out. So when they arrived, they literally flung open the doors and would sort of like, come on, come with us, quick, quick, quick. They were expecting to, whoever was stood at the door was ready to go. They were expecting people who'd been told, you're being evacuated. So they ushered Oloasane, Rosemary, their daughter, and Omar out. And Omar later said he believed the others were behind them. But they weren't. And the firefighters were just assuming that was, they were the only people in that flight. Yeah, they didn't have the full information of who they were actually supposed to be getting. Zainab's friend was on the phone to Zainab and he managed to get a firefighter to speak to her who reassured her they were on their way to save the people in that building. The firefighter said he knew they couldn't get past floor 12 but he just kept talking to her. They spoke for over an hour and he basically wanted her and her friend who was waiting outside to just keep hope. At some point during the call, two-year-old Jeremiah died and Zainab told this firefighter on the phone she didn't want to go on without her son. He kept reassuring her and telling her to stay positive. And then when he heard her die as well, he disconnected the call and said to her friend, um, the battery must have gone or the phone must have been di- uh, disconnected just to kind of save him, like, the anguish. And Zainab was only officially reported dead four weeks later um, when they were able to get into the building properly and they were able to recover people and her family had been waiting kind of you know not not expecting but hoping that potentially 
she and Jeremiah had survived, but then they finally found out that she hadn't and neither of them had. I think in the weeks leading up to them being officially pronounced dead, it, you would have lost hope. But I think in, in the very initial days after the fire, you would have been hoping that they had got out and they had gone to some community centre where they were being looked after and you'd almost be awaiting a phone call from them to say that, like, we're fine, we got out. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, certainly in the, in the initial days, you would you would have a lot of hope that they'd made it. Mm-hmm. And people were put up in hotels across the country, um, not across country, but across the city. So you might just not be able to see them and you might not have got a way to get in touch with them, but you might be hoping that actually they were put up in the Premier Inn that's, you know, miles away rather than the one that's close by. So you just wouldn't know. And there were reports of people where this sort of scenario had happened you know the other people in the building had passed away so then they they jumped because they knew they had no hope dennis who had also been in flat 113 died as well and omar's brother Mohammed passed away with dennis there were reports of him being missing and that i've seen like the missing posters online his loved ones were kind of searching him for the weeks as well before he was officially recovered and reported as dead and this is really horrible but Mohammed's friends actually learned that he had passed away because he saw photos of his lifeless body posted on social media. Mohammed's friend said to the inquiry, this was how I learned of Mohammed's death. It was shocking for me to see photos of his body like that. I heard later that the man who uploaded the photos and video of Mohammed's body was arrested and prosecuted for putting pictures onto Facebook. Honestly. And shame on Facebook for allowing that. Yeah. So this person had gone round and was like, oh my God, look what, I'm in the middle of this building and like I've seen this and horrific. 71 people were officially reported as dead in the aftermath of the blaze with the 72nd victim dying in palliative care in January 2018 so she hadn't been able to recover from the fire. 18 children died, including an unborn baby who was stillborn to parents who managed to escape the blaze and the oldest victim was 84 years old. Residents who made it out didn't have their nightmares end there and I could do a whole another episode about the issues faced by the residents of Grenfell when it came to rehousing them following the fire. It is just makes you angry, it's frustrating, it's horrible, it's just awful to read of how many people were just left to fend for themselves in hotels for weeks and weeks waiting to find out where they could live. As well as the main Grenfell Tower there were also three low-rise blocks so there's Barandan Walk Testerton Walk and Hurstway Walk which are collectively known as the walkways and people from those buildings were also evacuated at the time of the fire although they were able to return to their homes. There was a housing crisis like no other. There were people dealing with their grief for their friends and families, struggling with their mental health, working through the loss of their home and their belongings and then all combined with an absolute shambles when it came to rehoming people. And I think because these were people on the fringes of society, so um, yeah, just people that that a lot of the authorities just didn't really give a shit about. It carried on, didn't it? So so they weren't. I, I just think this is if this was a, a private block in Chelsea that was twenty four stories high, you just wonder what what the difference would have been, don't you? Yeah. Especially because those people would actually have the money to go and sort themselves out in a much better scenario. So they would have had the money to go and do stuff. But you know that they would actually get so much more support and help. Whereas these people, a lot of them um, were immigrants. A lot of them didn't really speak much English. So not only were they in a country they didn't know very well and they didn't speak the language, they were then suddenly in 
um, a system where they expected the council to actually support them and they were receiving no help. No, and I know there were a lot of charities set up in the aftermath, a lot of money raised and a lot of support there, but I even heard awful stories of people impersonating residents of Grenfell to then claim money from those charities. I know somebody was prosecuted for that, but yeah, it just shows that the awful nature of some people just on on the take, uh, taking advantage of of these people who've been through so much already. In the walkways, flaming debris was falling onto people's balconies and there were fears that the tower could collapse as well. So of course people were evacuated, but where to? One witness said, we were told to get out of the building. We weren't allowed to return until the Sunday or Monday following the fire. And actually for for, for five or six days, they weren't allowed back. And the witness said he doesn't know anyone on the estate that was offered accommodation in those first few days. He was lucky enough to go and stay with a friend, but not everyone had that option. And some people were even just sleeping on the grass outside the estate because they had nowhere to go. Another witness who lived in the walkways was at work when he heard about the fire and he rushed home. And luckily his family were fine, but they were not evacuated by anyone official. His church arranged accommodation He and his family were then allowed to move back home because their flat was kind of the furthest away from Grenfell Tower. However, the flat had gas but no hot water, so they had to shower at the leisure centre. And so, you know, yeah, you can go and shower somewhere, but that's really inconvenient. And they actually heard about the shower at the leisure centre from their neighbours. It wasn't advertised by the council, and the hot water in their flat wasn't restored until the beginning of August. Another witness who lived in Grenfell Tower spoke of the problems faced when it came to finding a new home and he kind of explained about how they lived in a hotel for about 11 weeks. They had to keep calling the resettlement team on numerous occasions regarding things like furniture and the council just completely were useless with communication. The council would give them wrong or incomplete information so we had to go back for clarification and he said we felt there was no empathy or compassion from the council or appreciation of the fact that we had lost our homes, our belongings, including photographs and furniture and clothes, and most importantly, we had lost friends and neighbours as a result of the Grenfell Tower disaster. They also then had loads of issues in their new place that they were given. Now, considering they'd just gone through a massive fire in their home, there was sparks coming out of sockets, the oven tripped the electric system whenever it was turned on, one of the sockets in the bedroom had burn marks around it. So, Alarm bells were really ringing and when he did speak to the council on numerous occasions he was basically told that because they were privately renting it just might take a bit longer to sort out. God I mean you're traumatised as it is because of everything you've gone through and then you're seeing sparks come out of plug sockets and blatantly thinking the same thing's going to happen again. Yeah another resident said of the council that they felt like they were putting up obstacle after obstacle after the fire and it was like a battle Um, that the council were heartless, that they weren't considering the situation in which the family were in. He said, we had just lost our home and several close friends. There was no compassion from the council when we were trying to get things sorted. They were very resistant and disorganised, losing our file as an example, saying they'd pay for new car keys and then the next day reversing that decision. And people weren't told that they could claim back expenses. So some were put up in hotels that were far away from their loved ones. So they were spending their own money travelling. They didn't know that they could keep receipts and claim that back or even ask for someone to book them their travel. The hotels were bare and cramped. 
The food was literally like bare minimum and a lot of witnesses talked of this lack of communication from the council. Their churches, the community groups, the charities that you mentioned, they were doing a much better job of actually helping and supporting people, but they were run by volunteers. These weren't the official means that they should have been followed. I think, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be like stumbling over my words, but it'd be interesting to know exactly what the community did to assist because it's a community of two halves. You've got these huge tower blocks housing uh, council tenants like Grenfell and then a, a five minute walk away, the Beckhams live in a big mansion in Holland Park. And so it is a, a sort of area of the haves and the have nots. And I just, I know Adele went along and supported and did an awful lot. I know Meghan Markle did. I just wonder what, what other residents did, who were the haves, how they contributed. I'd be really interested to know that. There is so much more. I mean, this could have been like a 10-parter episode. There's so much about what happened in the aftermath, which I've not chosen to kind of go into because there were certain people who showed up and tried to show their support and did a really good job. And then there were other people, politicians, who showed up and were basically booed and and yelled at. Um, and it went on and on and on. And this was, I think, one of the really frustrating points for a lot of people was that really they wanted quick and efficient help and support and years went by. Today, this tragedy is firmly still in the minds of the public. Grenfell's Towers blackened shell is still standing and it's a large imposing figure shrouded by plastic wrapping and scaffolding. It's a constant reminder of what happened and as we said at the beginning of the show, myself and Mark had that moment as we drove past it, thinking of the people who lost their lives. We recently as a nation celebrated the Queen's Jubilee, but the community group Justice for Grenfell highlighted the sombre mood for many by laying out a party table in the shadow of the tower out in the street in protest against the absence of justice for the 72 people killed. So they laid out this table with plates and cups and all sorts as if it was a party. And on the empty plates, there were the words 72 dead and still no arrests. How come? And the names of the 72 people in like the place settings. Wow, that is haunting, isn't it? What an amazing way to protest to get that message across because that would yeah that would be so upsetting to see all of those it really em- was this seats. juxtaposition yeah. of the country having a wonderful time doing celebrations and these people still not having proper answers yeah the group has been campaigning relentlessly for accountability and ultimately prosecutions not just for the fire itself but also for that following situation where survivors went either unhoused or shuttled between hotel rooms for years And the Grenfell United campaign group is also aiming for prosecutions as well. And they believe that the people responsible for the deaths of the 72 people should go to prison. The Grenfell Tower public inquiry has been working its way through the evidence since 2018. It began with moving tributes to the victims, heard desperate stories of residents escaping or dying in the tower as the fire service struggled to cope with a disaster that it had barely anticipated and rarely trained for. I have read statement upon statement upon statement from residents and firefighters and honestly, they're just heartbreaking. The second phase of the inquiry established a disastrous chain of events which led to the dangerous materials being used on the tower. A number of witness statements talk about the complaints they made or worries that they tried to bring up about fire safety in the building. But whilst the action groups are working towards prosecutions, and I will look briefly at who may be at risk of prosecution in a moment, it does seem unlikely that the official inquiry will result in any legal action. Although the inquiry resembles a court and it has a witness box, 
it has no dock and it has no jury. And most of the words spoken by witnesses can't even be used to prosecute them. And this was because of an agreement with the government's top lawyer, so the Attorney General, which was designed to prevent witnesses from exercising their right to remain silent. Because with people saying, I'll just exercise that right, the inquiry would have been impossible. So they were in a real catch-22. They needed the answers. And in doing so, they've actually set themselves up that these words can never be used to prosecute. I do understand, though, it is a difficult situation. It's yeah, perhaps, we need answers more, yeah, I suppose. I, I was going to say it's perhaps more important to get answers and then we can maybe prevent this from happening again. Mm-hmm. However, there is a parallel police investigation operation Northley, which has been underway for five years and there are no limits to how any evidence it obtains can be used. So Deputy Assistant Commissioner Stuart Cundy, who is overseeing it, says that although he has sometimes been shocked at what he's heard at the public inquiry, there is nothing which our criminal investigation is not aware of. And he says the police will follow evidence with a view to deciding which cases could then be put towards uh, put forward to the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service. So I think that's quite interesting. They will then sit back and listen and watch and see what do they have full evidence that they could then take for prosecution. So, who is investigated? Who could potentially be brought to justice? Well, firstly, the local council. The Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea owned Grenfell Tower and it was ultimately responsible for the disastrous refurbishment programme. It could face a charge of corporate manslaughter, but prosecutors would have to show that senior managers took significant decisions which then caused the death. And then the issue here is that the job of managing council properties was outsourced to TMO, the Tenant Management Organisation, so making that ultimately responsible for the long-term safety of Grenfell. So the TMO is under investigation and potentially may face corporate manslaughter charges. The council has admitted a series of failings and it told the public inquiry that its building control department didn't properly check that the refurbishment of Grenfell was safe. Council inspectors didn't ask for comprehensive plans for the cladding system and didn't know what insulation panels would be used, but still signed off on the completed work. The council claims that the architects, designers, cladding suppliers and contractors all recommended the use of the cladding and not an alternative fire-resistant version. About 700 different companies were connected with the refurbishment of the tower and there's relevant evidence, about 250 of them. 40 people have been questioned under caution, so evidence could be used against them or their employer and some have been questioned repeatedly. But if a company was convicted, nobody would go to prison because a company is not the same as a person. So the maximum penalty would be a a significant fine, but no prison really for a single person, unless you could prove that that one person made the whole decision, but they're not, they're investigating the companies. Many would want the government to just be held responsible, but the government can never be prosecuted for corporate manslaughter. So all of these action groups are really working for some sort of justice, but I just think what what really is going to happen, there's going to be a number of fines and companies go out of business. And as I said before, a lot of things have been brought in where you can't use certain cladding on buildings and they've got so many years to make changes. But actually, as you've now seen, well, the, the changes are in progress, so that's good enough. But it's it's not. It's taking too long. Definitely. And people are out of pocket. Individuals are out of pocket. And I think insurance companies I suppose should be picking up the tab a bit more than than they are. 
For this episode, there were so many options of witness testimonies or individual stories for me to share with you, and I've really only touched on a tiny section of this. I've looked at the photos, the names, the lives of the people who died. There was a man who had dementia, so he couldn't be convinced to leave and therefore died in his home. There were people who made it out but died of their injuries. There was a five-year-old who ended up separated from his family and the rest managed to escape and he died inside the building. A mother who died clutching her six-month-old baby to her. An Italian couple in their late 20s who died just next to each other. There was a man who was trapped with his mum and his sister and he saw them die in the top of the tower. He then took the decision to jump from the building after seeing this. But alongside this, there were stories of resilience. There were firefighters who worked 12-hour shifts, risking everything. Parents who threw their baby out of the window and the baby was caught by others and they all survived. Parents like Oluwesen and Rosemary, who we spoke of from Floor 14, just before they were rescued, they had strapped the four-year-old to Oluwesen's back and they were planning to lower themselves down on knotted sheets out to safety and they'd begun to check whether they would hold their weight but they were rescued and led out by the firefighters. And in fact, the four-year-old was still strapped to her dad as they made their way down. The tributes to the people who died are heartbreakingly beautiful. And I've chosen not to kind of highlight anybody specifically with tributes because I just felt it wouldn't have been right to name one person or five and not all 72 and talk about them all. And I basically just sobbed numerous times while I was writing and researching this case. And I'm sure many of our listeners will have joined me in that kind of as listening to this and I just really hope that someday there's some justice done and we'll definitely revisit this and potentially look at some of the other aspects of the case in another episode but I kind of just wanted to focus on almost like yeah the firefighters and the resilience of the people who lived there. Yeah just it's such such a haunting episode all of those individuals and families in that building with their own story uh, whether they made it out or not it's just just some awful things that they bear witness to. And yeah, it's like I am speechless, really. It's just, yeah, it's just something I don't think we'll ever forget about for the rest of our lives, will we? Mm, yeah. So there we go. Thank you for joining us, everybody, this week. And we'll be back next week. We'll see you then. <laughs>